0: Welcome to the Reading Muslims podcast. I'm Anwar Iman, director of the Institute of Islamic Studies. And it's my pleasure to introduce to you Suzanne conklin Uckbury, professor in historical studies at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton, New Jersey, formerly a colleague of ours here at the University of Toronto, specialist in medieval studies, who has done a lot to think about the relationship between Islam and Christianity in medieval Europe, who's challenged the notion of medieval European literature's insularity, and also um, really brings to bear the influence of arabic poetry music and philosophy in the medieval european experience welcome suzanne
1: it's so nice to be here thanks for having me on there um suzanne
0: we're delighted that you're uh one of our our, uh, our lead hub leaders for our reading practices hub it's uh it's a hub as you know that uh that really thinks hard about the way in which historical philological practices have influenced the the way we study Islam today, um, but also the way we think about texts. And so, what I want to do with you today is ask us a number of questions that locate that hub, but also locate you in the project and and speak to the the interests that you bring to what we're doing. So, let's uh, let's start with my first question. Uh, The Project on Reading Muslims centers on texts and textuality for their political salience across different periods of time. what you and I have been calling their pluritemporality. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on this idea of the pluritemporality of texts and what strikes you about it? Well,
1: there's a lot packed into that question. You know, you were talking a little bit about the political value or the political impact of texts. And, you know, my own work focuses on literary history and other kinds of history, uh, especially pre-modern, medieval. Um, and it would be easy to imagine that the literary, the artistic and so on is very much separate from the political. But as you and I both know, that is not the case, right? That sometimes the, often the cortex of literary history that we think about are intensely political and sometimes in ways that really shed a light on the role of religion and secularism in the expressions of the political. So I'm thinking, for example, of what I've taught in a world literature class, Dante's Divine Comedy. In um, Canto 28 of the Inferno includes a depiction of Muhammad and Ali in hell. And thinking about the ways in which that literature classroom provides an environment to talk about history, literature, poetics, um, different kinds of uh, religious difference, the politics crusade, all these kinds of things that exist in the pre-modern past, but are also active in the present. um, There's a lot to say about that. And it's there, I think, that the question of pluritemporality comes in, or at least one of the places pluritemporality comes in. Um, When we're in the classroom thinking about a pre-modern text, yeah, we're kind of trying to approach to bring ourselves nearer to that pre-modern sensibility, but we're also in our own moment. And those are always true even if we try to close our eyes to it. So that kind of dance between the pre-modern and the present moment is one part of that pluritemporality. Um, There's a lot more to say about that especially in how texts talk to one another, but we could see if we want to go in that direction. Thank you so much. Um,
0: Maybe we could talk about that and expand it even in the way we think about the descriptor that we oftentimes use for the texts in reading Muslims that we're talking about, calling them Islamic texts or Islamic Mm, texts. mm. Um, And it does that kind of phrasing presumes that we can talk meaningfully about these texts as having an Islamic designation. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how you think about a descriptor like that when describing a text or a literary tradition, and perhaps uh, expanding on what that could mean as we think across different time periods?
1: Well, I find terminology super interesting, whether we're talking about what pre-modern or specifically medieval people used, what terms they used to talk about things that we might also recognize, or the terms that we ourselves use. And Islamic, Muslim, Islamic those are particularly interesting terms to think about how they're mobilized. Muslim, uh, people will sometimes say to me, well, what's the difference between Islamic and Muslim? I'll tend to say, if you're talking about people, Muslim is the word that you're looking for. If you're talking about things, ideas, books, texts, architecture, uh, Islamic might be appropriate. And Islamicate is, I think, a a really useful term to think with. I mean, not a perfect term by any means, but a really useful term to think with. Weirdly, it was actually coined relatively early on, like back in the 60s, uh, Marshall Hodgson was was writing about this idea of Islamicate culture. And when his book, The Venture of Islam, came out in 1974, which was a little after his death, that sort of uh, caused a sort of a a brief flowering of the use of that term to talk about, you know, what kinds of things the Islamic world produces that aren't themselves connected directly to religion. So he would, for example, uh, describe certain kinds of architectural features as Islamicate, like certain kinds of arches or whatever, but mosque architecture itself would be Islamic. You know, so a way of kind of distinguishing between the things that are directly relevant somehow, directly impacted by Islam, or the Islamic cultural environment, versus things that are part of that wider world. And there's a lot to say about that. But in terms of terminology, I think i find really fascinating is that there's this initial kind of flowering of the term around hodgson and then it kind of goes underground and then it's in the last several years that it's re-emerged as a really useful category and i think that's tied to conversations around secularism and the place of religion in the public sphere so i think it's one of the reasons that islamic has come out again as a useful term for thinking with
0: that's really fascinating um and perhaps we can think about the the implications of secularity on these descriptors like Islam or Islamic it is, we also think about perhaps generating meaning, how we generate meaning, the ways in which people read. So, for instance, I know when we think about book production or texts, we oftentimes think of them as material objects, mm-hmm. um, and material objects with a certain provenance, a certain kind of even a glue that goes into their binding. And as we think about descriptors like Islamic or Islamic head, how might that? also play into the way this project distinguishes between sort of the materiality of the text and its history Mm. with the politics of how we read.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to say about that. So, you know, if we're thinking about our contemporary moment, you know, when we think about the book, right, we're sometimes talking about, you know, a book, a physical object you hold in your hand. But a lot of times we're talking about online text, reading on our tablets, reading on our laptops, on our phones, whatever, right? Um, And the space that the text inhabits is in a lot of really important ways, very different depending on which one of those reading environments we're talking about. And there's a lot you could say about that. One of the things I've been struck by is the ways in which I think people felt for a while as we moved into online reading practices that books would become increasingly obsolete. And it's true in some ways that that's happened. I think that people are doing a lot of reading online. But people have also come to, I think, kind of think about what are books as objects for? Like, what is the bookiness of the book for? right? And there's a lot you can say about design and physical structure and the book as object and even the book as, how can I put it, part of habitus, part of daily practice, part of the ways in which we live our lives as embodied people. And there's a lot to say about that, even specifically with regard to Muslim life and Muslim practice. But the other dimension of that that I tend to think about is the status of the text again in the pre-modern environment when we're talking about manuscript culture because there's a there's a kind of how can I put it, fluidity and multiplicity of textuality in the pre-modern period when you're talking about manuscript culture that that we tend not to think about. So for most people, I think now we tend to think about a text as something that's sort of stable, right? Like it exists in a particular version if I'm talking about, I don't know, to use an example I used earlier, Dante's Divine Comedy, right? Or Frédéric's Chalamet or something. We think about it as being a text and edited in a book and we understand it as one thing. But of course, these texts exist in multiple versions. And um, the manuscript history of that sort of folds out the potentiality of the text, especially texts that exist in many, many, many different versions. um, And one could talk about that. Um, But the other aspect of medieval multitextuality is that um, texts tend to appear in compendia, so juxtaposed with other texts. And together, those create a kind of dialogic or even, you know, cacophony, um, you know, uh, environment where texts are speaking simultaneously or relative to one another. Um, so thinking about the history of reading, the history of texts and the ways in which they engage in, I guess, what we might almost call conversations, I think could be a really fruitful part of this project. So in many ways,
0: if I could sort of elaborate on that question, it, it does seem that, um, you know, whereas we do have uh, a strong research tradition in material productions of books historically, and, and if I remember it correctly, you're part of a large project mm. here at the University of Toronto on that. If I Maybe Maybe you could elaborate a little bit about what that project is and how you might see the connections there to what we're doing here at Reading Muslims.
1: Yeah and, and in particular there's an example of uh, uh, from that project that might be relevant directly to some of the issues we were talking about around terminology. So the book in the Silk Roads is a large-scale research project that um, is based at the University of Toronto but includes collaborators from a wide range of institutions and it's funded by the Mellon Foundation and we're basically developing a kind of a network for thinking about the pre-modern book not just in terms of its textual content which is the main thing that people tend to talk about with regard to books but the books as physical objects what their bindings are like what materials make them up how they're laid out uh, all these different physical features and i think there's two truly innovative things about this project one is that interest in the book as physical object um as i said very different from the normal focus on it as primarily text but the other aspect is thinking about it in a really capacious global kind of context. So looking at books from South Asia, from the Horn of Africa, um, from Central Asia, um, from Central Asia, and so on, from the medieval of book production at these points of contact, what kinds of um, cultural contact can we reconstruct by looking at the craft practices that make up the books, the materials that make up the books, the way they lay out their texts on the page, um, all these kinds of material aspects of the text. And um, uh, I mentioned that there's a kind of a, uh, an example I could bring out from that project that might be useful for thinking with. Um, one of the manuscripts we've been looking at recently is one that's held in the Fisher uh, Rare Book and Manuscript Library at the University of Toronto. And it's, uh, it's a little uh, late 16th, early 17th century book that's um, bound in what is often described as an Islamic binding. And by Islamic binding, what's meant is a sort of envelope flap format book, where one side sort of folds over with a pointed edge, uh, like an envelope plug. And um, interestingly though, the book is in fact in, in Sanskrit and it's um, got all these kinds of persicate or sort of Persian or Mughal influenced envi- aspects, but it's it's a book that's, uh reflects Hindu spiritual practice written in Sanskrit. So it represents this kind of crossover. So what does it mean to call that an Islamic binding? Because it's not Islamic in any meaningful sense. And one of the things I find so fascinating about that example is it's a really wonderful manuscript in itself, and there's a wonderful story you can tell about it, but also the way that terminology kind of opens up some Questions. Why do we use confessional terms to talk about book formats? You see things like the Christian Codex or sometimes the Manichaean Codex, um, terminology that uh, arises from, I would suggest, the role that the book plays and the text plays within um, histories of religion and ways in which religion is made intelligible in our modern world. So, So that's a project that's about materiality of the book as opposed to textual content of the book, but I think it makes a powerful complement Um, to the focus on textuality that we see in the Reading Muslims project.
0: I would agree as well. I I think it's a wonderful way to think uh, together with both materiality and the way in which we read these things across different time periods. Um, So, my next question to you is also just, just to really think about some of the main core questions around reading Muslims. On the one hand, a lot of these questions are things that we've been grappling with in the field for a long time, and yet they also feel very present, they feel very new, they feel very urgent and there's an urgency that many of us come to with in this project so i was wondering if you could on on the one hand give us a bit of a sense of where you think these questions have come from or what they're mm. you know how they how have they been addressed how have they already been done but at the same time what's innovative and new here for you in the mm. context of uh of our research
1: together Well, mm. oh, yeah i find myself thinking about how can I put it? I find it very difficult to extricate my thinking about that topic in a detached kind of way from my own experience of the last 20 years in particular, but even longer, the last maybe, I don't know, 30, 35 years. Um, so after 9-11, thinking about Muslims, it's not that it changed, but a lot of things that were unspoken and were underground became explicit. And having lived in that reality for almost 20 years now, um, there's a lot to say about what it has felt like as a Muslim person to live in that world. And the ways in which I can talk about that is as somebody, uh, as a as a convert, an adult convert, and also somebody I think whose, whose sense of participation in the American Muslim community has been inflected by the ways that's changed, Canadian and American Muslim community. Um, we're really aware of how that's changed over time. One of the things that was really, striking, I think, in public discourse and in the media is the extent to which Muslims were read, have been read, as as other, as alien, um, often in racialized terms, but even when not in explicitly racialized terms, in terms of dress, in terms of practice, in terms of um, behaviors, and so on. And one of the things I've become more and more aware of is the kind of spectrum of um, Muslim identity, Muslim participation, ways of being Muslim in contemporary North American society. And I feel like one of the potentials that this project has is to To give a little bit of voice to that and make visible the spectrum. Um, And so I feel like that's one really important element of the project. Um, Another element that I think is absolutely fascinating, this project is really the way it's framed as reading Muslims, because that can always mean at least two things. That is reading Muslims, how Muslims are read, you know, the way in which uh, the eye of uh, uh, Western legal systems, media, and so on reads Muslims, understands Muslims to be reads them as if they were a text. Right, uh, but then the other side is you know reading Muslims, where reading is kind of a modifier of the noun Muslims, right? Like what it is to read as a Muslim, how Muslims have read, um, how they read, what you know, what kinds of readers they are, and so I feel like there is a tremendous range of possibility that's opened up in that. What well, what
0: that brings up? So this brings me to my last question because you know what's important. Uh, as, a, as someone like myself who's trained as a medievalist in the Islamic legal tradition and you yourself a medievalist in the European tradition, in many ways so much of what excites me as well about reading Muslims is what you've talked about the last 30 or some odd years in which the various inflections around Muslims have shifted. Mm-hmm. And so my question to you is as a medievalist, as a European medievalist what excites you about reading Muslims only because we are talking about new like, a variations and a spectrum that's that's relatively modern, and yet Mm -hmm. as medievalists, both of us find ourselves here. And if you can speak to some of the excitement that you see Mm -hmm. in this field coming from where you do disciplinarily.
1: Yeah. Also, within the specifically medieval studies vantage point, um, medieval studies is often understood to be sort of in the global turn right now, by which I mean there's a self-conscious awareness of the extent to which the discipline has been constructed and almost invisibly understood as normatively white. Christian, Western European, right? And so the borders of that field have been stretched for a long, long, long time. This is a generations-long project so that, for example, at a place like the University of Toronto, when the Center for Medieval Studies was founded in the mid-1960s, there were faculty on the masthead who were working in Arabic or Persian or Hebrew, a whole range of other kinds of languages. So that breadth was always there. And there's a traditional strength in studying Muslim, Christian, and Jewish interactions in the Middle Ages. That was always there, but there's been this kind of self-consciousness conscious awareness of the normative quality um, of that field. And so what it's resulted in is, in some cases, a rebranding exercise where programs are like, oh, we're global now. We'll cross-list a few courses from other departments and now we're global. In other cases, it's involved a real sort of interrogation of the foundations of the discipline, thinking about 19th century colonialism, when these disciplines emerged, um, and the early 20th century in particular, um, and World War One for the emergence of medieval studies as a field. So there's a lot to say about those histories, those disciplinary histories. But beyond that, one of the things that's going on in this global turn is there's a desire to revision not just what we teach, like what is the object of study, whether we're talking about medieval history, medieval literature, or medieval philosophy, but also who's at the table, who's included and who's not included. So there's really two sides which are at the same time deeply intertwined um in this change within medieval studies what's the object of study and who's doing the work um so that so thinking about muslims in that context is a really uh, exciting element i mean from my point of view anyway because it invites us to think about the role of religion in the histories of race you know there's been a lot of really powerful important work that's been happening in the last several years in particular around pre-modern race. For a long time, there was a tendency, and, and I think I myself have been oriented that way, to understand race in the modern sense as primarily a sort of an enlightenment phenomenon. While we could see pre-modern racializing discourses, race in the sense that we know it is something that's often understood as a product of modernity. But critical race theory has given us a way of thinking about a continuity uh, between pre-modern and modern manifestations of racialization and understanding that as one thing. And in within the parameters of that field, there's a tendency to understand religion as one mode, of racialization. In other words, one aspect of race rather than a thing in itself. And for medievalists in particular, I feel like it's in a really fruitful point, to a really fruitful sort of bone to chew on. To what extent can we understand religious difference as an aspect of race when we're talking about the Middle Ages? And to what extent is it A different vector, doing a different kind of work around identity. Um, And I feel like that's a really fruitful point of convergence of the Reading Muslims project and medieval studies in the global turn.
0: Suzanne, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us today. And I want to thank you for your time, for your energy, enthusiasm for our project.
1: Oh, thank you for organizing this. Um, It's been a great conversation.
0: I look forward to our next conversation on Reading Muslims.